Amen. Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to John chapter 3. We're going to continue in our examination of the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus as Nicodemus has come to him in the middle of the night with uh, questions about the signs that Jesus has been doing and where he comes from and who he is. And tonight we see one of, if not the most popular verses in all of Scripture, and that is John 316. It's a verse everybody knows. We see it in gospel tracts. We see it posted up in churches. We see it in church signs, billboards. Uh, me and Courtney, we were at Walmart last month shopping and uh, heard it in a country song over the loudspeakers. I couldn't tell you what song it is. I don't listen to country music, but uh, we see it everywhere. Now, Tim Tebow, when he was playing in the NFL, he wore John 316 on, on him, and it's, it's everywhere. We see and hear it all over the place. Bible Gateway, which is uh, one of the most popular uh, internet Bible websites where people can go and look up scripture, uh, says that John 3.16 is by far the most looked up verse on their website. Everybody in America, it seems, knows this verse. And I, I'm sure that many of us, uh, we've known this verse since we were little kids growing up. This is one of the first verses that I ever memorized in scripture. It's popular and rightfully so. Because after all, John 3.16 is the heart and soul of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But often, I think we forget that this verse was not written by itself. It was written in a larger context within the confines of a larger conversation. And it gives us, in that context, we find more life in this verse, more overall meaning in this verse, but we also find grave warnings in this verse that I think we often forget about. It's a verse that gives tremendous hope to the world, but it's also a verse that in context should strike absolute fear in anyone who does not accept what it says. And that is the teaching we are going to discuss tonight, this great passage of truth that's encouraging yet fearful, the passage of exactly what God did for us. So let's look tonight in John 3, starting in verse 16, and we'll be going all the way through verse 21. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, verse 16, like I said, it's the most popular verse of all of scripture. It's the most famous. God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a wonderful truth. You know, that's, that's what keeps us going every day is that we know we have a God who loved the world enough to send his son. And if we believe in him as we have, we will not perish. What an encouragement. 
But as I said, we need to make sure we don't lose the greater context of this verse. And to see that greater context, we need to back up a few verses to what we read last week in verses 13 and 15. And it says this, starting in 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we see Jesus giving comparison to the scripture and scenario that we looked at last week in the book of Numbers chapter 21 with Moses and the fiery serpents and lifting up that bronze serpent up on a pole so that those who looked upon it would be healed. And Jesus, he would be lifted up on the cross that those who believed in him, they did not have to perish, but they would have eternal life. Now, we're often tempted to read John 3.16 like this. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. However, that's not what the verse says, and that's not what it means. The word so here is not a marker of degree. It's not how much God loved the world. In the Greek, it, the word is hutos. It's the same word used for so back in verse 14, which says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a comparison in this way. This is how. And remember, verse 16 in the greater context of the verses preceding it. In fact, the Christian Standard Bible, which is put out by the Southern Baptist Convention, it translates the verse this way. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So that is actually the more literal and more correct way to translate and understand this verse. It is in this way that God loves the world. Jesus, as he said, in this way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's not diminishing the theology or significance or even how much God loves us, but it is magnifying the impact of what exactly God gave up. His only Son. And the word only there has significance that we often over look as well, because what we overlook and what we just, just so quickly pass by in our thinking is that Christ was unique. He was the only one, that perfect spotless lamb of God. There is none other like him. He's not the only child of God. After all, we are made children of God when we are saved, but he is the only son of God. He is the only one that has that direct and special and absolute relationship to the father because he himself is also God. There is nobody that could take our sin for us. He is the only one, that perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is Christ, and it is Christ alone, the only one of the Father. And we looked earlier in John at the parallel of the Lamb of God and offering up his only son to sacrifice, as being parallel with Abraham being told to offer up Isaac up on the mountain. And this is referenced in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, though Isaac shall your offspring through Isaac, excuse me, shall your offspring be named. Now we know that Abraham had other children. Isaac wasn't his 
only son in, in the physical sense. Just as God had other sons and daughters by their spiritual rebirth. But Isaac, Isaac was special. Isaac, there was something different about him because Isaac was the one that certain promises were made about given to Abraham. Isaac was the unique one. He was special. He was Abraham's only son of promise. And that is the same word in Hebrews being used here in John to describe Jesus, both here in John 3.16 and as we saw earlier, the same word in John 1.14, which says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is the only Son. Jesus is the only way. He's the only spotless Lamb. He is the only one that is sufficient. He is the only one that has the holiness of the Father. He is the only one that can save. He is the only one that was able to be perfect. He is the only one that was never, not even once, overcome by sin. He's one of a kind. He's unique. He's special. And that simple fact, that should increase our awe and wonder. It should increase our appreciation, our thankfulness, and it should increase our humbleness regarding what happened on the cross. The value of Christ's blood, the value of his sacrifice, the price that God was paying is innumerable. We can't measure it. We can't count it. You know, people, people put outrageous prices on, on things that are one of a kind, right? I mean, think about, think about sports items. In, in 1998, there was a baseball auction. And this baseball happened to be the first home run ever hit in the original Yankee Stadium by Babe Ruth. And this baseball was auctioned for $126,000 plus another $500. $126,500. $100. Yes, it was one of a kind. It was unique, but it was a baseball. A baseball. $126,000. How much more should we value Christ and his sacrifice on the cross? How much more special is that one of a kind item? The blood of Jesus Christ, what he paid for on the cross. How much more should we value the love of God? You can't put a price on it. You can't, you can't count it. It doesn't have a set value because it's invaluable. We can't put a value to it. We can't label it. But that is what God gave to the world. His only son, his unique son, his special son, his one of a kind son. And why? So that those who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He loved the world, a world that rejected him, a world full of sinners, a world who does nothing good, a world that hates the things of God. God gave Jesus up for that. He gave Jesus Christ up for you. He gave Jesus Christ up for me. And that right there should cause all of us to fall to our knees and cry out for the forgiveness of God because we do not deserve that kind of grace. We don't deserve it. Yet he gave it to us. He gave it freely. He loved the world. Now, we need to look at the word world because this verse is not speaking about individuals. It's not speaking about individual people. 
It's talking about the human race collectively. Remember, the context of this passage is that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. And John is trying to drive a point home as he does throughout this entire book that Jesus did not only come to save the Jews. That is the backdrop of Jewish thought up to this point. Remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews were the ones that he gave the revelation of Scripture through to the prophets. It was the Jews that God gave the promises to. It was through the Jews that the Messiah would come. They were his people. And the Jews had no use for Gentiles. They thought they were better. They thought they were superior. They were the ones who were worthy. They were the ones who God loved, who God chose. But no, God loves all people. He loved the world, not just the Jews. And this should cause us to rejoice because of this fact, we who are not Jews are able to come to the feet of the Savior. We are able to be grafted into the family of God, even though we are not the original chosen people of God. We are the chosen children of God because God sent His Son for all people, not just the Jews. But it's not enough that God gave His Son. There's a requirement. Whoever believes in Him, that is, whoever believes in Christ, and we know this will not be everyone. Not everyone is elect to salvation. We will see this further down the road clearly. There are two groups of people. There are those who will be saved, and there are those who will not. Those who will believe, and those who will not believe. Those who do believe will not perish, but have eternal life. But what is the other side of that coin? What is the flip side? If those who believe will not perish, that means those who do not believe certainly will perish. They certainly will perish. I'll get more into this in just a moment, but it's a sober, it's, this is the sobering part of John 3.16. If you reject it, if you do not believe, if you do not accept this truth, if you do not trust Christ to make Him Lord, you will perish. You will not have eternal life. And this is not a one-time thing. This is eternal. Just like the life is eternal, so is this death. It's an eternal destruction, a ruin. It's not an annihilation. You don't cease to exist. It's ongoing. It is a ruining that causes you to be thrown out. In this case, it causes you to be thrown out into hell. You are not salvageable. You are corrupt. You are ruined. You're destroyed. But this is not for those who believe and all that the Father has chosen will believe. I want to make this clear. If you are in Christ, it is because God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world. He has selected you. Those who God has chosen will come to saving faith before they leave this earth. It is sealed. It's been decreed. I want to look at a few verses tonight that discuss this plain truth. Several being here in John's gospel. First in John 6 Verse 44, it says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And also in chapter six, verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Nobody comes to Christ unless the father draws him. It has been granted to him by the father. Remember, as we've been talking about, it is God's choice to save. 
It's not our choice. Those that the Father chooses to draw will be raised up on the last day. They will be saved. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It is the sheep that hears Christ's voice. The Father gives them to the Son. Nobody is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Remember, your salvation is sealed. God chooses, God delivers, and most importantly, God keeps. You can't lose it. It is of God and God alone. You can't lose it just as you can't do anything to gain it. It is all of God. And John 3.16 affirms this. Whoever believes shall not perish. The ones who believe are the ones who God chooses and they will never perish. And Paul, he makes this clear in Romans chapter 8. It says this starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who God foreknew. This is, this is not God looking down the corridors of time to see who would believe in him and then selecting them because of that. No, this is God having an intimate knowledge of someone or something. That's what the word foreknew means. It literally means to choose beforehand. Those whom he chose, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And who is conformed to the image of his son? Christians. Those who believe. And then those whom he predestined, he also called. And this goes back to what we see in John's gospel. Those that the father calls are the ones that get drawn to Christ. And those that are drawn to Christ Come to him, and Christ raises them up on the last day. What a wonderful truth. That God in his infinite wisdom chose us out of the mire of sin and death to become his children. That should encourage us. It should strengthen us. But it should also humble us to worship the Lord. Because after all, who are we? Why did God choose me? I don't know. I don't know why God chose me. I'm not worthy of being chosen, but he did. So we have no choice but to worship him and to bring glory to his name. Whoever believes in him, they will never perish. Now back in John 3, look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now at first, this seems like a major contradiction in scripture because we know that Jesus absolutely did come to judge and condemn. After all, what does he say in John chapter 9, verse 39? Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may become blind, uh, may see may become blind. But remember the context that we are working with. God loved all people. 
For God so loved all people, all nations, Jew and Gentile. He didn't come to condemn the Gentiles and save the Jew only. No, God's purpose has always been to save all people, both Jew and Gentile. Now, that's not to be confused with every individual. Like I said, we know every individual does not get saved. The Bible is very clear about that. But He saves all types of people. Look for a moment in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, and starting in verse 6, it says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Israel, and more importantly, the Messiah that would come out of Israel would be a light to the nations, a purpose for all people. It's, you know, it's amazing that the Jews missed so much. They missed who their Messiah is. They missed the purpose of their Messiah. It was right there in the Old Testament. It was there for them to see. The Jews in the Gospels, like I said, they looked down upon the Gentiles. They were unclean. They were unworthy. They were heathen. They were not the people that the promises were made to. They, more importantly, were not Jews. They cannot fathom a Messiah that would come to save not only them, but Gentiles as well. This was so foreign to the thinking of the Jews. Yet that is exactly what verses 16 and 17 say, that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus' purpose here on earth was one thing, to seek and to save that which was lost, to redeem people. That was His mission. Judgment will come, but that was not the purpose of His time here on earth. He came to save. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. But why did Jesus not come to condemn? Why did he not need to condemn here on earth? Verse 18 of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed In the name of the only Son of God. And here again, we see two things. We see an encouragement for those who believe. And we see a dire warning for those who do not. Those who believe are not condemned. But those who do not are condemned already. When we are born, we are born into sin. We must have a Savior. We need to be saved. And until we are saved, we are under the wrath and judgment of God. And what does it mean to be condemned? It means eternal death, punishment. It means separation from God's communion. It means that the eternal wrath of God is upon you for all eternity. And this is the other half of the gospel. The gospel has two sides. If you do not believe, you will be ruined and punished eternally. You know, we so often focus only on the parts of the gospel that are encouraging and that are feel good. And we must necessarily talk about those parts of the gospel. But people also need to know what they need to be saved from in the first place. They need to know why they need a Savior. And if we don't focus on those things, we do the gospel and the people we are trying to witness to an injustice. What are they being saved from? 
You know, I, I work with a, a group called Christian Service Brigade, and a few years ago I was, I was giving a message on Wednesday night during one of their, uh, their message times, uh, and I was preaching on the, the Romans Road. That was the topic I had been given, the Romans Road. And so I got to uh, Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I wanted them to understand exactly what this death was, exactly what that meant. So I read some verses to them, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 8, 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Matthew 8, 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if those verses weren't enough, I finished with Jesus talking about the rich man in Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner the bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torture. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And when I got done preaching that message that night, one of our uh, student leaders, he was just a little 14-year-old boy, he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, Lieutenant Dave, that was... That was good, but it felt like you were trying to scare people into heaven. And I was crushed by hearing those words, not because I thought he was right, but because he misses the whole point. Because he thought that people shouldn't preach the full gospel. The full gospel. The gospel has two sides, eternal life and eternal torment. And we do not do ourselves or anyone else a service if we leave out the harsh realities of what happens if you do not accept Christ. You know, as, as Brother Paul was preaching this morning about witnessing, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's, there's so many people that call us hypocrites and that say we don't, uh, we don't live the life that, that we should, and that's exactly the point. And I think the reason that people think that is because they don't hear the full message. We're not saying, hey, you need to get saved to be like us. You're getting saved because if you don't, you will spend eternal life or death in hell. 
you will be tormented forever because of your sin, because of your rebellion. Just like we were. Yes, we are just like you, but we have something you don't. We have salvation. We have hope. We are working on being different. That doesn't mean we don't mess up. Of course we're going to be hypocrites because we still sin. We need to preach the whole gospel. This fact should, should scare people. They should be terrified. They should be falling on their knees and begging God to save them, begging God for forgiveness of their sin that they have committed against Him. The Scriptures, they say we are to fear God. You know, we've talked about Romans 3 a lot as we've been going through the book of John to show that there's nobody that's good, there's nobody that is righteous, none that seek after God. But it says this in verse 18 of that chapter, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God. And the word fear in that verse means to show a deep reverence and respect as a product of being presented an intimidating and alarming force. And that's what God is. Yes, God is love, but God also has wrath. God also has judgment because God is holy and we are not. And he cannot have anything that is not righteous in his presence. So why do they not believe? Why, why, why do they not come to Christ? Why do they not choose that path? Why would anyone not fear God enough to fall down and repent of their sins? Why would they not fear his wrath enough to make that decision to follow Christ? Well, verses 19 through 21 give us that answer in John chapter 3. It says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The answer to this question of why do people not choose Christ is a simple one. It's a simple answer. People do not come to Christ because they love their sin. They love their sin. Their works are evil and they hate the light. They would rather be left alone in their sin than to accept Christ and have to believe all that he is and submit to him and believe that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. They just want to be left to themselves and do as they desire. And as we've said, this is, this is all of us. We were all that way before we were drawn by God. We would rather have been left in our own sin before the Spirit changed us. We hated the light before God gave us a new heart, a new mind, and a new direction, and we followed Christ. And the word for loved in that verse with regard to the darkness is the exact same word for love that is used in verse 16 to describe God's love for the world. It's agape, a high esteem, a satisfaction, a regard, a longing, an affection for something or someone. Without the Spirit, we have a love that is so directly opposed to God that we are called evil. Their works were evil. We were literally, morally, and socially utterly worthless. That's what the word evil and wicked mean. Morally, socially, utterly worthless. We should have just been thrown away. We were trash. 
We were nothing. That's what evil means. We are so debased, so wicked that we cannot love God in any way if we are left to our own selves without the influence of the Spirit. And that's exactly what's written here. They loved darkness. They loved the wicked things. They hated the light. They did not want their evil to be exposed. They hate the light. They detest it. They abhor it. They want nothing to do with it. They're malicious towards the light in an unjustifiable way. And what is that light? As we'll see time and time again throughout the book of John, Jesus is that light. They hate Christ. They hate everything Christ stands for. And do we not see this in our world today? Is that not what we see all around us? We hear it on the news. We see it in the courts. We see it in politics. I mean, if you hear some of the things some of these presidential candidates are talking about, they hate Christ. And as a, an extension, they hate Christians. They hate the church. They hate the Bible. They hate everything to do with it. They want to expunge it from culture. They want to just wipe it out. We've seen the Ten Commandments removed from schools, prayer removed from schools, Bibles removed from schools. They used to teach Bible classes in schools. We've taken all that out. They hate the light. They hate Christ and everything to do with Him. Darkness hates the light. But there's hope. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those that do what is right, those that strive to live righteously and follow God, their works have been carried out in God. It is God, it is God alone that gives us the power to live righteously. We can't, we can't do it in our own strength. I certainly can't. Left in my own ways, I screw up every single time. We do not want to do it in our own strength, but God gives us the power to do it in His strength. There is no evil in God, and through His Son, we have the right to become His children. Through His Son, we have been declared righteous. And this righteousness is only available by believing in Christ and what He has accomplished. It is by Christ's obedience to the cross that we will be given the right to eternal life. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Adam... We all die. We're hopeless in Adam. In Adam, we are born into sin. In Adam, we are the children of darkness. In Adam, we hate the light. In Christ, we are made right. In Christ, we are restored to what God had intended in the Garden of Eden. In Christ, we are declared to be good. In Christ, we live. John 3.16 is a, is a great verse in its own right. But when we look at its Full context, the verse has much more power, much more weight, much more meaning. We serve a God who is love, but we serve a God who made the greatest sacrifice with the most expensive and valuable means of that sacrifice that could be made, His only unique Son, Jesus Christ. So I think we take that sacrifice for granted often. We don't think about the full impact of what God did. We hear those words and it doesn't resonate as much as it should because we don't think about what they actually mean. That God gave everything for us. He left nothing on the table. 
He laid it all out there, did everything he possibly could to redeem us and save us. And he accomplished that goal. Let's never take that for granted. Never take that for granted. God offers salvation to all people, yet none of those people, not you, not me, none of us deserve it. We deserve an eternity in hell. But God laid it out there in his love. He gave it to us, gave his only son. Christ died on that cross. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what you did give, Lord. The sacrifice you did make, Lord, that we did not deserve. We thank you for the truth, Lord, that you have drawn us to your side to find salvation in your son. Lord, may we never take that for granted, but Lord, may we do as Brother Paul was talking about this morning, to go and be that witness to the nations, not just hide it within ourselves, Lord, because that is not what you have called us to do. Let us preach it and scream it from the rooftops. And let us never take it for granted, Lord, but always turn and fall to our knees and worship you because you are a great and mighty God. We love you and thank you for all that you've done for us, even though we are not worthy. In Jesus' name we pray.